Welcome back to Wired to be Weird, where I, a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania, and my scientist co-host, Bo, Hi. discuss various topics in neuroscience and society. In the last episode, we talked about two of the most famous studies in the history of psychology and human behavior. The marshmallow test and the Stanford Prison Experiment. That's right. And if you didn't catch that episode, you should probably check it out. And, you know, Ian, I've been thinking about some of what we talked about since that last podcast. In, in what way? Well, just like questioning my assumptions about what's good or bad for young kids. Like particularly whether screen time is as bad as we kind of assume. Screen time, meaning like the use of devices like iPads or iPhones or, or whatever? Yeah. Well, I mean, back in my day, TV included. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and so, so Bo is referring to a part of one of the latest studies that were sort of like updates to the marshmallow test. Right, where they pulled several hundred adults to see what they think about whether kids are basically getting more or less patient since the 80s. That's right, and the vast majority of the polled adults expected that kids are getting worse. Yeah, including us. And as it turned out, at least for the updated marshmallow test, kids are actually getting quite a bit better. Right. And something that was uh, pretty cool about the updated study was that the original scientist who conducted the original marshmallow test in the 1960s was actually a contributor to this latest study published earlier this year. What was his name again? Michelle? Yeah, yeah. So it was Walter Michelle uh, with a kind of interesting spelling. But anyways, it, it was kind of an elegant way to improve upon the original study by integrating more sophisticated and comprehensive tools when testing the kids' abilities to delay gratification and using a more holistic data set to characterize both the cognitive development of the kids as well as the characteristics of their environments. All of which we assume combine to determine things like a child's intelligence. Right. And it was just such a nice touch to have the original um, effort readdressed with modern methods while still exploiting the expertise and wisdom of the original scientist. Kind of like a nice way to marry the past research and modern methods. And I bet a more amiable way to potentially correct some of the interpretations of the data from the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess rather than just like flat out disagreeing or contradicting, it's maybe just a bit more graceful. Um, but the marshmallow test wasn't the only study we discussed. We also talked about the Stanford prison experiment, which, as the name implies, was also done at Stanford University at around the same time, right? That's pretty much right, yeah. And, and before we go further, um, I just want to make an ask of any listeners who've enjoyed the show. If you have a spare moment, we'd love a nice rating on iTunes if you have the time. And I know it's kind of awkward because they make you sign up and sign in and literally everybody forgets their passwords. But, um, but if you can make it past all those hurdles, we'd really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone. Okay. So to recap, the Stanford Prison Experiment basically took place over the course of six days in the summer of 1971, so a little bit later than the marshmallow test. But our conversation was largely motivated by some reporting that a journalist named Ben Blum published that was focused on recontextualizing the experiment by highlighting some of the details of the experiment that have been largely forgotten when discussing the implications of the study. Right, and there was a lot to discuss. So again, if you haven't heard the last episode, it's pretty worth it. It's also just kind of cool because there's a pretty compelling story that Blum narrates for us, and Ian found some cool audio recordings from the original study participants. Yeah, that's right. And um, 
And there was more than just Blum's article. Um, you know, as any study that's received the kind of attention that the Stanford Prison Experiment did, it's had its critics over the years. Um, there have been articles published by psychologists in you know the popular press about how much they felt it was being improperly interpreted. But Blum made such strong claims about the study and interviewed a few people who were either instrumental in conducting the study. Like one of the college kids who was recruited to be a prisoner. Right, Douglas Corpy who was originally understood as an example of a student who basically lost their mind because of the severe distress of the prison. But when interviewed, he said that he actually was just putting on a show because he wanted to get out of the experiment to study for his GREs. Yeah. And, and so again, you know, check out the last episode for more details on potential issues with the experiment like that. However, unlike the update to the marshmallow test, Phillips and Bardo, the professor who was responsible for the experiment. That's right. Philip Zimbardo was a professor who was what we call the principal investigator. Or PI. Yeah. Well, so unlike the marshmallow test update, which included Walter Michel in the newer study, this was just some journalism to highlight aspects of the study that might be confounding factors. And so while Ben Blum did include a brief interview with Zimbardo towards the end of the article, which Blum said was cut pretty short because basically Zimbardo didn't like where it was headed. Yeah, uh, it seemed like a sort of adversarial interview. But, right, it's clear that, Bum, uh, <laughs> that Blum was highlighting details that would compromise the validity of many of the interpretations of the study. And while we were discussing it, I said that I hoped Philip Zimbardo would publish a response to Blum's article. Ooh, and did he put one out? Yep. Nice. So was it a good response or was it just sort of like, how dare you? You're terrible. <laughs> well, a little of both, but it's definitely a pretty thorough response. And he brings up some rather interesting details in defense of the study. However, after reading both his response, as well as the original study that was published in Naval Research Reviews, I feel like while a lot of what Blum was criticizing is likely based on a misunderstanding of how human behavioral studies are, and maybe more importantly, how they were conducted, there's definitely an important role played by the broader societal context in which the study was conducted that adds quite a bit of texture to the study. And I imagine to how we should interpret it. Exactly. So to begin, there's a quote from Zimbardo that I think nicely sums up what his overall argument is, and it goes like this, quote, None of these criticisms presents any substantial evidence that alters the SPE's main conclusion concerning the importance of understanding how systemic and situational forces can operate to influence individual behavior in negative or positive directions, often without our personal awareness. And then later, quote, the SPEs. Okay, so the SPE meaning the Stanford Prison Experiment. Right, yes, thank you. That, that's what he calls it going forward. Um, so he says, um, quote, the SPE's core message is not that a psychological simulation of prison life is the same as the real thing, or that prisoners and guards are always even usually behave in the way that they did in the SPE. Rather, the SPE serves as a cautionary tale of what might happen to any of us if we underestimate the extent to which the power of social roles and external pressures can influence our actions. Okay, so he's sort of arguing that people shouldn't use the experiment as a way to claim that all people will act so abusively when put in the position of being a prison guard. That's right. But just that basically anyone is capable of doing so. Exactly. Um, that there's a potential beast in all of us. And I want to make the argument here that the Stanford Prison Experiment was motivated by and used to argue a very fundamental point. 
in human psychology, a foundational argument that we've brought up before and will inevitably bring up again. I think I know where this is going. I think you do. But this isn't made entirely clear by how the study has been interpreted over the years or even how it's been criticized in the popular press since its publication. It's much clearer when one reads the original 1973 publication in Naval Research Reviews. By the way, what is the deal with being published in that journal? I mean, is that the journal to which people regularly submit? Yeah, I mean, it is kind of odd. Um, I mean, p- perhaps it's a bit more common in psychology than I'm aware. But, um, you know, evidently the reason it was initially published there was because Zimbardo was using some leftover funds from a grant he secured from the Navy. And the awarding of the grant stipulated that the research must be published there. Um, It was eventually published in another academic journal and then, ultimately, of course, in the New York Times magazine soon thereafter. But yeah, kind of an interesting quirk. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense given that the Navy deals with intense situations uh, when in the field. Yeah, I don't think there's anything to criticize there. Um, You know, there is a question, though, of the standards of peer review available to publications in in that particular journal, maybe, and how the fact it was published in this naval journal might affect the peer review process for the next journal. What was the next journal? Which was the only academic journal that it was published in, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. Um, So it was the International Journal of Criminology and Penology, and it was done at the invitation of the editor. And how frequently do editors invite publications like that? Right. Well, yeah. Um, so that might seem a bit iffy, but but it does actually happen. But keep in mind, for any respected peer-reviewed publication, any invitation, I mean, it, it'll still have to go through the peer review process with academics scrutinizing the publication. Um, and so, you know, I don't want to get too deep into the nitty gritty of peer review. Right. We don't want to lose however many listeners there still might be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I think it's fairly safe to say Um, that having an editor of a journal be motivated to accept the manuscript may have an influence on how many rounds of peer review a given submission needs before being accepted. Like at what point the editor finds the peer review process to be satisfactory. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, But that doesn't mean it's inherently a problem at all. And, and, you know, without any further information on who is involved in the peer review and how many rounds of, of review the publication underwent, this really doesn't strike me as a reasonable point of criticism. Okay, fair enough. And what about the fact that it was eventually published in the New York Times magazine? Right. And so he addresses this, too. And he defends it in a way that I've seen members of many disciplines um, within science uh, do, which is by highlighting the fact that tens of thousands more people will see his work when published in a publication like the New York Times magazine and will therefore far more significantly influence society and culture than any academic publication ever could if relegated solely to academia. I guess that's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't see any problem that's inherent to doing stuff like this, so long as a publication has gone through peer review. And every now and then you'll see a publication in a science-focused online outlet that's based purely on interviews of the scientists leading the investigation. Right. Whenever I see those kinds of things, I have to wonder how that went down. I mean, the article can't have gone through peer review yet, right? Well, I guess, I mean, it, it could have been accepted and just hasn't gone to press yet. Like, it just hasn't gone public yet, but it's been accepted by the journal. It's just sort of waiting for the next publication date. Yeah, exactly. Um, But sometimes it does seem a bit fishy if there's no acknowledgement of that at all. But that isn't necessarily what happened here. We just don't know how rigorously the Stanford Prison Experiment was peer-reviewed. So I guess we'll have to leave it at that without knowing more about how 
that all went down. Yeah, though I do think there's something else worth discussing here when it comes to how science is communicated to the public. Like, you know, for example, I study a particular circuit that's one of the major conduits of signaling between regions of the brain that are in the front to regions that are in the middle and regions that are in the back of the brain. You know, we're not the only group that studies it, of course, and different groups have different ideas about how specific patterns of neuronal activity in this part of the brain might be related to psychiatric conditions like depression, right, or, or anxiety disorders or OCD or, or addiction. Right. So kind of related to human behavior, but maybe a bit more mechanistic, more about specific molecules and biology. That's right. And, and so as scientists, we do the best experiments we can with the resources and creativity at our disposal to try and figure out which hypotheses about how these various patterns of activity might underlie these conditions, and science progresses as a result. Sure, totally agree. Then, every now and then, um, after you know the best series of experiments makes it through the gauntlets of peer review and the scrutiny of other scientists, and the work has some interest value beyond just the granular and technical you know, implications of the discoveries. Like you mean even people outside of the field might actually care about the findings <laughs> of the study? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, for example, it, it might translate to new treatments for the conditions I, I study. You know, for example, an article might be published in a publication like The New Yorker or other publications that don't typically include this kind of work because hey, this group might have taken a, a big step towards curing addiction, which is a serious public concern. And while most people probably think the words interpeduncular nucleus or dorsal diencephalic conduction system are basically just made of gibberish. They certainly sound that way, yes. Right. Um, well, you know, that may be the case. <laughs> but uh, most people probably have an intuitive sense that tens of thousands of more people are dying every year from opioid overdose fatalities than ever before in the history of humanity with more people dying from drug overdoses last year than did in both the Vietnam and Iraq wars combined. And progress towards understanding and curing addiction is not only intrinsically good, but crucial at this point. Wow. Is that right about the numbers of people overdosing? Yeah. So according to CDC uh, statistics, that many people died last year of drug overdoses, um, and in 2016 as well, by the way. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so, you know, so discoveries that might lead us in the direction of curing this malady would have a clear public interest and almost certainly make it into the popular press as a result, right? But the reality is there's really no way for me to short-circuit that trajectory of publication, right? While it seems like public literacy of neuroscience is actually pretty surprising in some places, judging from my interactions with the general public, you know, like, like a surprising number of people might be able to name more than two neurotransmitters in brain regions. But it's not like I can pitch an article to USA Today about how I think the medial labanula and the interpeduncular nucleus regulate anxiety independently of drug withdrawal, explaining the chemogenetics and the optogenetics and, and viral tracing data that I've been collecting. You know, it just it wouldn't land. Yeah, I think you'd lose them at interpeduncular. Yeah, I mean, I, it's honestly, it's hard for me to pay attention sometimes when I'm reading these, right? It's, it's dense stuff. But my point is that work at this level of neuroscience basically can't influence public opinion until it's already made it through the gauntlet of peer review and earned that level of significance with the implicit green light of at least a collection of other scientists who weren't involved in my work. Right. It's not like you yourself can market your own work. It's not particularly intuitive to most people. Right. But when I think of a field like social psychology, I think there's a fundamental difference there. While it's likely true that most people outside of neuroscience can't quite decipher what I mean by, you know, lateral dorsal tegmental nucleus, most people, regardless of socioeconomic status or education or, or whatever, have a pretty good sense of what prison is or, you know, a sense of justice and injustice, care and abuse, right? 
you know, while it's armed with very sophisticated statistical methods and a rich foundation of work throughout history, it's still a discipline that can operate using language that's accessible to people outside of the discipline, right? So, you know, I guess what I'm saying is that maybe there's a kind of unique challenge or, or maybe responsibility to communicating that kind of work to make sure that work with an obvious public consequence goes through peer review and a level of scrutiny that's acceptable to the scientific community before hitting the popular press. Sure, I see what you mean. Uh, particularly when it comes to topics that are so clearly going to make a huge splash and maybe have consequences for how society operates. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what, I'm, what I mean. Okay, so to go back to the Stanford Prison Experiment. Right, so, so the original uh, title of the study, by the way, of course, wasn't the Stanford Prison Experiment. It was um, titled Interpersonal Dynamics in a Simulated Prison. <laughs> but, but anyways... Um, in the body of the introduction, a fairly lengthy and unique introduction, by the way, and, and we'll get to that in a minute, um, Zimbardo identifies a hypothesis in psychology that I would argue is really the central focus of the study. And so it's called the dispositional hypothesis. So dispositional like a person's dis disposition? Yeah, that's right. And, and so he here's a quote from the original 1973 article that's a nice example of both how he personally sees this hypothesis as well as what is an entirely conspicuous personal perspective on the accuracy of this dispositional hypothesis. So uh, Zimbardo's team writes, attempts to provide an explanation for the deplorable condition of our penal system and its dehumanizing effects upon prisoners and guards often focus upon what might be called the dispositional hypothesis. Wow, some pretty heavy, heavy language already, uh, you know, including deplorable and dehumanizing. For sure. And so, and he goes on. Quote, thus, on the one hand, there is the contention that violence and brutality exist within prison because guards are sadistic, uneducated, and insensitive people, end quote. And, and then later they write, quote, or from the other quarters comes the argument that violence and brutality in prison are the logical and predictable result of the involuntary confinement of a collective of individuals whose life histories are, by definition, characterized by disregard for law, order, and social convention, and a concurrent propensity for impulsivity and aggression, end quote. <laughs> right. Well, I knew it. Well, so he's basically saying that there are two arguments to explain why prisons are so prison-like right either guards are just predisposed to ha to behave in brutal ways and prisoners are just predisposed to act as criminals or the very existence of the prison is what causes people to be modified in a way to promote these types of behaviors being a guard makes people want to behave in stereotypical guard-like behavior and being a prisoner makes people want to behave as stereotypical prisoners, or in other words, is it nature or nurture? Right. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I feel like we can probably just abbreviate nature nurture to like N-O-N at this point, because almost every question at the heart of important debates about how we ought to construct society can, you know, pretty much boil down to just how much of human behavior is inevitable as a byproduct of, you know, our largely immutable biology versus how much it could be modified by altering society. But um, so, so they go a bit further here and, um, and they extend the logic of this debate um, at the center of the prison system of the early 70s. And, you know, I bet they'd argue the same is true about today's prison. I mean, I would imagine. So um, they write, quote, to control such men as these, the argument continues, whose basic orientation to any conflict situation is to react with physical power or deception, 
Force must be met with force, and a certain number of violent encounters must be expected and tolerated by the public. End quote. Right. They're basically saying that it's just in their nature to be criminals, and they can't really help it. Then the only thing such people will understand, or the only thing that will be effective in managing them, is this kind of aggression that they themselves exhibit. Exactly. And, you know, so th- this is, again, this is Zimbardo and, and the, the team explaining one side of the argument here, right? This isn't what they are arguing. And so, you know, by the way, I, you know, I kind of feel like that's a recurring argument, um, that the only thing a specific group of people will understand is violence or severe punishment. And, you know, maybe it'll be interesting to just keep track of when those arguments come up and how frequently they're, they're accurate. Um, but, you know, we shall see. Or at least maybe supported by actual evidence. Yeah, right, exactly. So, but, but anyways, you're right, right? It's basically a nature-nurture argument that the team is making. And they argue that the modern prison system is based upon the premise that we'd call the nature argument. That prisoners are basically born to be criminals. Right. And, and so they state that this argument, again, that they call the dispositional hypothesis, has been used to justify what they characterize as clearly inhumane treatment of prisoners. They make vehemently... Are, they vehemently argue that the prison system you know, of the 1970s is, is an abject failure. And basically, from the first paragraph, it's clear that this experiment did not originate from an unbiased perspective, you know, from scientists who had no preconceptions about any potential advantages or disadvantages of the modern uh, prison system. You know, it, it read like prose. Um, in fact, he opens with quotes from Dostoevsky and then quickly moves on to highlight how some of the prominent failures uh, of the prison system, um, you know, have, have been demonstrated. And so uh, as an example, they say, quote, on purely pragmatic grounds, there is substantial evidence that prisons really neither, uh, quote, rehabilitate, uh, end quote, nor act as a deterrent to future crime. In America, recidivism rates upwards of 75 percent speak to quite decisively to these criteria, end quote. And then later, quote, to perpetuate what is additionally an economic failure, American taxpayers alone must provide an expenditure for corrections of $1.5 billion annually. On humanitarian grounds as well, prisons have failed. Our mass media are increasingly filled with accounts of atrocities committed daily, man against man, in reaction to the penal system or in the name of it. And um, the last line in... Right. Oh, yeah. End quote. Thank you. <laughs> and so the, the last line um, in this quote, I think, makes it clear that there was obviously a policy minded agenda underlying this study. So, um, quote, the experience of prison creates undeniably, almost to the point of cliche, an intense hatred and disrespect in most inmates for the authority and the established order of society into which they will eventually return and the toll which it takes on the deterioration of human spirit for those who must administer it, as well as for those upon whom it is inflicted, is incalculable, end quote. Yikes. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a hell of a line. I mean, they're basically saying that prisons make beasts of us all. That's right. And, you know, keep in mind, this is in the introduction of the study. I mean, you know, they technically haven't gotten to any of the data they collected yet. Uh, this kind of writing strikes me as more prose than scientific writing. And, you know, by the way, I should say that I do think a lot of what they argue is absolutely true and that there are severe flaws in the way that our penal system is run. And there are structural, political and economic relationships that result in, you know, despicably perverse incentives. OK, so it's not like he's necessarily wrong. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's, you know. This is ostensibly a scientific publication, right? And and honestly, I think many people would agree with his overall uh, argument, or at least the team's overall argument, both back then in you know in their early seventies as well as now. 
apart from perhaps the companies that run private prisons, perhaps, right? I suspect that there's a broad degree of skepticism when it comes to just how effective our penal system generally is, certainly when it comes to the laws that regulate drug use and addiction, for example. And of course, you know, it's worth noting that I'm not a psychologist by training, nor, of course, you know, a legislator. But stipulating that from a purely scientific and experimental design perspective, it seems that the observer of this observational study had a very clear bias, if not an agenda to alter policy, in deciding to conduct this study. Right. It sounds like he was already convinced that there was something deeply faulty in the prison system, and he was going to do the study that he felt would reveal what it was. In other words, he had a hypothesis, and instead of trying to disprove it, like you're supposed to do uh, as a scientific uh, experiment, you're actually trying, he's actually trying to prove it instead. Yeah, I mean, so that's exactly what it seems like from this introduction. And, and for those who haven't gone through learning specifically what the scientific uh, method technically is and why it's such a transformative style of thinking that's, you know, revolutionized basically every aspect of our daily lives, you know, from the technology you're using to listen to our conversation to why you wash your hands. There's a specific trajectory that all scientists follow when constructing experiments. Right. So no matter what kind of science, from material science like what I did to neuroscience like what Ian does, there's always the same basic structure to the stories that we end up telling. Exactly. And, and, you know, a lot of people will just abbreviate the scientific method to the following. First, collecting information and observing some kind of a dynamic. Second, forming a hypothesis to explain what's going on. Third, testing the hypothesis. And then fourth, interpreting the results. There's actually a bit of depth to those second and third steps that can be missed. And it's actually pretty central to how we design experiments. Not that it's totally incorrect to state it that way, but it's just not completely correct. Yeah, so exactly. Um, when it comes to forming and testing hypotheses, what we're actually supposed to do, as you mentioned, is design an experiment that will attempt to disprove your hypothesis. You're basically trying to poke holes in your hypothesis. Right. You're not trying to confirm your initial suspicions about a given question. You're trying to poke holes in it and figure out how it's wrong and how it could be improved. That's right. To, to more accurately re reflect reality. Exactly. Um, and so as, as accurately as possible, right? And, and while that may sound like a purely semantic issue, it actually does translate to differences in how we both construct experiments and how you would administer the experiment. And, and honestly, it kind of sets our cognitive framework when confronting new data. You know, it sets the scene or, or you know, it, it sets the posture we take when evaluating new science. You know, we don't immediately accept what the data seem to be saying about our initial hypothesis. We focus more on how the data might refute our hypothesis. And there's some terminology that reflects this, like rejecting the null hypothesis. Yes, that's right. Um, it, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like a small thing that I could imagine, like a, a, a stickler of an intro neuro or any, really any science uh, a professor grading their students on, right? What language do they use? Do they say the data support our hypothesis? Or do they more correctly say these data caused us to reject the null hypothesis, <laughs> which I know might sound like gibberish and even maybe poor grammar. <laughs> but it just basically means that none of the ways we tried to poke holes in our hypothesis ended up being supported by the evidence. Right. And, and so, you know, the main point is that we just approach studies with a skeptical perspective. Because like any human who's testing anything out, scientist otherwise, you have your own expectations about the outcomes of any given experiment. Exactly. And, you know, since my experiments operate in multiple domains of biology, from molecular to neurophysiological to behavioral, just sitting back and watching mice behave in a way that I don't expect 
can demand a fair degree of discipline, right? Um, and, and, you know, since I'm studying something uh, as sensitive as anxiety in an animal model that's basically just constantly anxious, I do everything I can to avoid even acknowledging that I'm surprised. I don't even want to exude any potential pheromones or hormones, you know, like metaphysical brain waves that we have yet to even discover that might influence the mouse's behavior. <laughs> well, you know, they might have to check out our podcast on pheromones yeah right or, or maybe they just have yet to be discovered right um, but anyways to get back to the stanford prison experiment i don't think it's a stretch to pick up on zimbardo and his researchers being motivated by a pretty strong perspective on what was wrong with the state of prisons in the 1970s you know from between the lines of zimbardo's introduction and again you know it's not like i disagree with his overall sentiment it's just honestly pretty jarring to see so strong an argument in the introduction of a paper and you know perhaps this isn't all that unique in psychology papers but you know judging from a few conversations i've had with people in psych departments it's at least no longer very common to see arguments like that being made without a ton of references all right so while they might have arguably had a fairly biased perspective when it came to the subject matter they were studying that doesn't necessarily translate to a biased experimental design. Definitely true. And um, they provide an explanation for why they conducted the study in the way that they did. Like why they tried to simulate a prison? Yeah. And so their explanation was what they... Well, they basically are saying they'd be unable to critically evaluate this dispositional hypothesis, which, you know, again, asserts that there's something intrinsic to the prisoners that predisposes them to being in prison. Um, if they were to just observe, you know, in a normal prison um, with, you know, the typical prisoners who comprise them, rather they needed to fabricate a simulated prison, uh, but then fill it with people who aren't already prisoners, right, to see how they would behave. Because that would, I guess, modify the one thing that the dispositional hypothesis kind of assumes, which is that the prisoners who end up in prison were kind of like destined to be there. If instead they have a prison that's filled with non-prisoner types, then they can see if it's just the prison environment that changes people into abusive roots. So if it's nature and not nurture, then they wouldn't see inhumane conditions arise in their simulated prison because the people in the prison just don't have it in their nature to behave that way. Pretty much. And the flip side of the hypothesis as well, that if it's strictly the environment, and nurture that they'll see a recapitulation of those inhumane behavior. I mean, I guess that's not particularly surprising. I guess that's always been part of how the Stanford prison experiment is described. But it is kind of strange to think of that as being the underlying thing that they were testing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel the same way. And, and that's the overarching agenda. Right. Well, given that that was sort of like their whole goal was to show that things like, um, you know, high rates of recidivism or the inhumane treatment of prisoners was largely attributable to the prisons themselves and less to the prisoners or the guards intrinsic nature. I mean, it, it just I feel like it's never presented that way. OK, well, I remember a lot of the critiques of the experiment uh, that revolved around there having been quite a bit of acting among both the guards and the prisoners. Did he address those points? Yeah, and the way that he described a few things was interesting. So, for example, when they described the goals of what they were trying to confer to the prisoners, they write, quote, feelings of power and, helpless, and, and powerlessness, of control and oppression, of satisfaction and frustration, of arbitrary rule and resistance to authority, of status and anonymity, of machismo and emasculation. In the conventional terminology of experimental social, psych social psychology, we first identified a number of relevant conceptual variables through analysis of existing prison situations and design 
find a setting in which these variables were operationalized. Okay, so basically they tried to identify key features of prisons and then tried to make an environment where those features would play out between people who wouldn't be argued to have it in their nature to be criminals. Yeah, that's right. But then, you know, as they describe their methods, you know, characterizing, you know, things like the size and composition of cells and, you know, their small solitary confinement facility, which, by the way, was just two by two by seven. Yikes. That's got to be smaller than the standard solitary confinement. Size. I mean, I would certainly hope so. <laughs> um, but, but you know, fair enough. You know, they're open about not trying to entirely reproduce a perfect replica of a specific prison or anything. Just, you know, provide an environment where a lot of what they see playing out in prisons can function. But then they get into how the participants were instructed, and, and this is how they describe it. Quote, they were told that we wanted to try and s try to simulate a prison environment within the limits imposed by pragmatic and ethical considerations. Their assigned task was to maintain the reasonable degree of order within the prison necessary for its effective functioning, although the specifics of how this duty might be implemented were not explicitly detailed. They were made aware of the fact that while many of the contingencies with which they might be confronted were essentially unpredictable, for example, prisoner escape attempts, part of their task was to be prepared for such eventualities and to be able to deal appropriately with the variety of situations that might arise, end quote. Okay, so you know it's worth highlighting that the recordings that we included in the last episode demonstrate that the guards seem to receive a bit more guidance on how they're expected to behave. And in their defense, they were given guidance to behave as they'd expect real prison guards to behave. Yeah, so that's right. I mean, you know, so I transcribed one of the recordings um, of the guidance they received, and I think it makes the point we're discussing right now. So, um, quote, the guards have to know every guard is going to be what we call tough guards. So far, you have to try and get it in you. And then there's protestations, you know, from the, the participants. Um, and resuming the quote, what I would do as a guard, if it was just entirely up to me, is I wouldn't do anything and I just let it roll off. Our purpose here is not to devise a better prison. The idea is that this is supposed to be as nearly as we can make it to a copy of the existing one. In other words, we want to see what this does to ordinary innocent people, and we know it's not nice. But we don't know how it's not nice. And that's what we're trying to find out. And hopefully, what will come out of this study is a very serious recommendation for reform, or at least reform, if not a revolutionary type of reform. And so this is our goal. You know, we're not trying to do this just because we're all, you know, sadists, end quote. So, you know, it's not like they're explicitly telling the guards to be abusive, but they're definitely not just telling the participants that they're guards and then just letting them behave completely naturally. For sure. And they're also kind of communicating the underlying goal of the research, that they want a, quote, revolutionary type of reform, end quote. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it's kind of wild that, that they would be guided that way. And so, you know, again, I honestly, I applaud this overall goal, right? But it strikes me as a bit of a confounding factor to have the guards almost ideologically driven to demonstrate that, you know, th that a simulation of a prison as it exists today can warp a person into behaving like a beast. And wasn't one of them actually a self-proclaimed sadist? Yeah, there's some quotes where they mention, like, uh, I sort of prided myself as, as a sadist. And, you know, th there's so many quotes from, from that era. But, but I mean, I think, you know, just given the fact that they communicated that they're not, tr you know, that they're trying to simulate the worst possible prison, basically, and the end goal of being, you know, they want to reform prison. I mean, I think that that's a massively confounding factor. 
But in defense of the study, Zimbardo suggests that asking a person who's role-playing a guard in a prison simulation to be firm and in the action is far less severe of a push compared to the types of guidance that actual prison guards in actual prisons evidently receive from the wardens and superior officers. Does he give any examples? Not in his response article, but, you know, I'm frankly willing to grant that, you know, at least if we solely focus on the prisons where brutal and abusive treatment of prisoners has occurred, there may well have been some overt guidance from leaders to behave in that way. Right. Or maybe just a kind of culture of abuse. Like we hear a lot about how corporate culture at certain companies can be particularly toxic. I know I've heard that's how Uber used to be, for example, and the argument is that it kind of comes from the top down. The people in charge sort of set the standard for what is and what's not acceptable in terms of how people are treated. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point and probably something that Zimbardo would absolutely highlight. And, you know, I think it's helpful to keep in mind that um, this prison simulation was pretty seriously short, right? It, it was less than a full week. And it's also important to keep in mind that we're not talking about a ton of people here either. Yeah, so how many people were in that study, in? So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we talked about um, how it was, how, how the participants were recruited and, and maybe more importantly, what types of people were recruited um, just in terms of how representative their sample was. Because, of course, when you're doing a scientific study with a sample, the whole idea behind having a sample is that it should be a sample of the broader population that it's supposed to represent. Exactly. And so, you know, they used newspaper ads to recruit male volunteers for a psychological study of, quote, prison life. Um, that would pay them $15 a day. And, and they started with 75 respondents. Do you know where the ad was placed? No, so so um, they don't say that, but I imagine it must have been around the Stanford area um, since it was, you know, college students who were at least in the Stanford area during the summer. Um, and so, you know, I guess they weren't necessarily all Stanford students. Um, like, you know, some of them could have been coming home from the summer from elsewhere, but they do note that they're largely middle class and Caucasian with the exception of one, quote, oriental subject, as they put it. <laughs> A bit of quaint ethnic language there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, different terms were used in the 70s. Yeah, though I guess it's worth noting that this is a fairly limited sample population, right? Yeah, and so after doing a battery of psychological and physical assessments, they ended up with 10 prisoners and 11 guards. Right, so we're not talking about a ton of people here, just 21 college students. Yeah, I know. And, and, you know, maybe it's just because of the outsized influence that this um, study has had on our understanding of human psychology. But I always sort of assumed that it was with more people, and, and I never really scrutinized the fact that these were all pretty young people. You know, not that there aren't people within that age range in prison, but, you know, of course, there are people who are much older than that as well. Yeah, I see what you mean. I know I'm a pretty different person now compared to the 20-year-old me. Yeah, it's safe to say that I was too. Um, in fact, I hadn't completely decided that I'd go into science when I was 20. Well, you know, for me, it's just a difference of a couple of years, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, well, I definitely knew I was going to science at 20. Um, how young were you when you knew you were going to go into science? Just out of curiosity. Oh, um, like five, you know. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was, I always was really interested in science, but I did have a phase where I wanted to become an artist. And my parents Ooh. told me not to become an artist because artists don't make enough money. Ouch. And then I wanted to be a scientist but they also told me not to be a scientist. <laughs> well, they're right about that. <laughs> because scientists don't make enough money. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, yeah, you know, so I, you know, rebelled, I guess. <laughs> I pursued scientists, science, and uh, I was even on a robotics team in high school. 
Wow. Oh, that's right. And, you know, so while I was pretending like I had any business playing like a guitar or singing in front of people, you were making killer robots. Well, they didn't kill. Oh, I see. So, but they attempted to kill. (laughs) Yeah, they weren't good enough to do their intended purpose, I guess. Upon the advice of my lawyer, I can neither confirm nor deny that they attempted to kill. Oh, nice. Using the Glomar response. <laughs> What's the Glomar response? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the whole, you know, can neither confirm nor deny thing. That's where that comes from. Huh. Well, I mean, I thought that it was just a legal thing. Well, it is. I mean, so so Glomar was um, part of uh, like a name of the submarine that the CIA used to try and salvage a so- uh, Soviet submarine from the Pacific Ocean in the mid 70s. You know, it was just like this massive project that cost the equivalent of several billion dollars. Um, and, you know, of course, it was be done on it was being done on the down low. But I imagine it's pretty tough to keep a project that big a secret. Right. And so so this journalist found out and the CIA's response to her was that they can neither confirm nor deny the existence of this project. I see. The Glomar yeah. response. That's the Glomar. Yeah. Okay. So um, so not particularly relevant to uh, prisoners um, or Zimbardo's defense of, of his uh, prison experiment. Right. Back to the experiment. I remember one of the claims that Blum made uh, that we discussed in the last episode was that one of the guards was basically acting like he was from the South. I mean, did Zimbardo address those types of claims? Yeah, so he highlights that particular example, um, in fact, and, and provided an even more elaborate description. And so part of his description was actually pretty intense. And so in his response, um, Zimbardo writes, quote, in an extreme perversion of his experimentally assigned role, he devised an unthinkable way to humiliate all prisoners on the fifth night of the study. He ordered them to think of themselves as camels, half as males and the other half as females. Ugh, that's pretty random. Why camels? Yeah, I mean, it's like kind of a specific animal to choose, right? And, uh, and you know, keep in mind, these are all male participants. Right. And so, so Zimbardo continues, quote, Those ordered to be female camels had to bend over, while the male camel prisoners were ordered to hump them doggy style. Blah. Right, which they reluctantly did by simulating sodomy. Um, Keep in mind, this is still the quote. <laughs> um, okay, so quote, a video recording made in my absence Im- indicated this episode lasted nearly 10 minutes with all three guards shouting epithets and laughing hysterically. Fortunately, I had early earlier decided to terminate the experiment the next morning, end quote. Okay, that's just, you know, getting out of hand. Yeah, and, and honestly, you know, as, it's, it's pretty wild, just, you know, flat out wild but a few other things jump out at me right first of all i was sort of under the impression that he was basically always observing interactions between the participants but given that this pretty wild interaction occurred and and even occurred after he'd ostensibly already decided that the experiment had spiraled out of control i mean i just get the feeling that there must have been quite a bit that transpired without the knowledge of zimbardo Hmm, i see what you mean he already concluded that the study had to be stopped because the guards were getting so abusive so he basically knew that the guards were behaving badly, but he still neglected to keep an eye on them. Right. And then, and you know, honestly, this is pure speculation here. So speculation alert. But to have such a rapid devolution of interactions within just a matter of days and not even full days, just shifts. I mean, it strikes me as surprising. And, and you know, I just have to think. I mean, keep in mind, this is basically Berkeley, California in the early 1970s. Or, you know, at least college kids from the Berkeley area, let's say. Now, obviously, I don't know what it was like to be young in the early 70s or precisely what Berkeley might have been like at the time, but I've certainly heard stories. 
Mm, what do you mean? I don't know. I mean, it just occurs to me that there are 21 college guys from around the Stanford area that aren't being observed particularly closely. You know, they may have had a bit of a rebellious streak. And again, you know, total speculation here. But I found a quote in a thread from somebody who evidently attended Berkeley in the early 70s. And he said that it was, quote, radical in the sense that all the TAs and grad students, many of the classes were taught by TAs, were the rioters from the late 60s. I see where you're going with this. Maybe uh, you think that they got up to their own shenanigans? I mean, yeah, again, in total speculation, I just have to repeat it, but it's kind of tough to know what a place was just sort of like at a time in the past, particularly one, you know, several decades in the past. But this was like right after some pretty significant social activism focused on the Vietnam conflict, you know, and we're talking about the baby boomers here, right? And I've been led to believe that the the baby boomers, or at least some of them, perhaps particularly those who lived in and around San Francisco, had a pretty rebellious streak in them and enjoyed exploring altered states of consciousness a fair bit. (laughs) So uh, you think they took acid or something? (laughs) I mean, yeah. So, uh, of course, I have no idea, but I do have to wonder. So anyways, obviously complete speculation. But at least for me, you know, an important part of the story is missing an account from the prisoners indicating that they sincerely ever felt in serious danger or degraded or in dire straits, that the guards sincerely felt that the prisoners deserved the treatment that they were receiving, either those that they observed or those that they themselves meted out, and similarly, interviews of the prisoners indicating that they were traumatized by this experience, that they were sincerely feeling in that moment that they are in danger and subject to the capricious whims of their captors, who, of course... You know, they were rationally understood to be actors. Or were they all just knowingly playing pretend, right? Uh, Like, just how deep did this simulation run? Was everyone aware that it was a simulation? So, And so the guards were pretending to be the worst possible guards, while the prisoners were pretending to be the most hopeless prisoners that they could imagine? That's exactly what I mean. Um, Right. And, you know, perhaps those types of interviews do exist. You know, the students were certainly interviewed subsequent to the experiment, including, by the way, Doug Corpy. The student who had the fairly infamous breakdown, but who said that he was faking it so that he could study for his GREs. Exactly. And, and, you know, Zimbardo couldn't explain why Corpy's account of his experience seemed to change so much over the years. So, you know, for example, in a documentary called Quiet Rage, Corpy was quoted as saying, quote, I've never been so upset in my life. It was an experience of being out of control both of the situation and of my feelings. The Stanford prison was a very benign prison uh, situation, and it still caused guards to become sadistic and prisoners to become hysterical, end quote. Wow, yeah, so that's a pretty different kind of quote. Yeah, I mean, and it's interesting. There are clips of Corpy in um, in this documentary being interviewed, and at the time of the documentary, he'd been a prison psychologist for 14 years. Wow. So it seems sort of like this might have been a pretty life-defining experience for him. I mean, it's a pretty specific job to go into. Yeah. And so, you know, the the clips are even more interesting because there are recordings of him, which I'll drop in here if I can do some bleeping of the audio. But, you know, fair warning, even with the expletives bleeped, it's pretty intense, um, you know, the recording. So here's where I'll drop it. Inside. I feel really up inside. You don't know. I got to go. I to a doctor. Anything. I can't say now. I'm up. I don't know how to explain it. I'm up inside. Oh, no. Wow, that's super intense. I mean, he's acting. He's a really, really good actor. I mean, honestly, I think so, too. Um, You know, I'd be pretty convinced. 
but and by the way i probably would have been pretty motivated to let him out too just given you know how intense it was but after the recording he goes on to describe why he went into becoming a prison psychologist and it's clear that he basically created a life derived from his experience in this experiment right and i don't know anyone who does that professionally but i imagine it's a pretty difficult job right and but for him to literally later say that if you listen to the tape it's not subtle i'm not that good at acting and then you know he later said that he was having a great time acting like a prisoner and that he was just being a good employee i mean it certainly makes it hard to avoid being a bit cynical about how both the study was conducted and how it was communicated to the public after it was done they were all acting the parts they were assigned right and one of them was very obviously acting pretending to be john wayne So are you saying that maybe they kind of kept up the act after the experiment was done? I mean, you know, the cynic in me could see that happening. You know, anyways, I'm glad you brought up the issue of of, of acting. You know, Zimbardo uses this intriguing phrase to characterize the environment they made. He's repeatedly called it a Pirandellian prison. So you're obviously going to have to define that. Yeah, so I, I definitely had to look it up. And honestly, it wasn't entirely simple to figure out. I don't even know if I do completely understand it yet. I basically had to find like a couple of New York Times articles from like the you know early, ni- actually from 1973, as well as like, uh, you know, in the 1980s. Which is, the, you know, about the same year and time that the original Stanford prison experiment was published. Yeah, exactly. 1973. Exactly. Uh, it's kind of funny. But in any case, the article suggests that the term Perendellian, named after Luigi Perendello, uh, I believe, had become kind of a household word everywhere and um, an adjective in, in many languages. Oh, that's crazy because I've never heard it. I know. Me neither. You know, it's an interesting article um, without, you know, any relationship to the, the Stanford prison experiment. But basically his work came into prominence during the rise of fascism in Italy and was dealing with some of the themes that society at the time was grappling with. After the First World War, right? Um, so this is before World War II. Uh, people had become doubtful of the old social pillars of what's truth, justice, and virtue, and you know the value of family and the value of patriotism and freedom and, and so on. Right. So in the early days of what started building up to World War II, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so evidently Pirandello became famous for works where the relationships between actors, directors, and writers were sort of challenged. And so when the differences between an actor and the character they're playing dissolve away, right? And they sort of entirely embody the character. That evidently is Pirandellian. Is that like method acting? I mean, I guess so. You know, like I've seen people describe what happened to Heath Ledger after playing the Joker, uh, um, the Joker character in The Dark Knight, you know, the, the Batman movie as Pirandellian. Like he was so deeply affected by playing the character that the line between him and the character compromised his life. Wow. Okay. I see. Uh, And so how did the Zimbardo team use this phrase? Well, so he's described the experiment as simulating a Pirandellian prison. And so here's how he describes it. Quote, the SPE was a drama that was enacted by young men playing their assigned roles without scripted lines and without an audience for hours and days on end. Everyone knew it was only a play. Everyone knew it was just a psychology experiment, that they were in the base of the psych department. Not a real prison that the prisoners had not committed any crimes, that the guards could have earned their salary by simply playing cards in their guard office for much of the eight-hour shift as long as they kept prisoners locked in their cells. But in a relatively short time frame, the psychology study became a prison. The only two ways out of the dungeon were to be released by the arbitrary decision of the parole board or by becoming, slash acting, seriously disturbed mentally or physically, end quote. Right. So he's saying that 
Just like in the cases of the plays of Pirandello, the students had really become their characters. Right. So that's his argument. But something I've wondered from the beginning of diving into, you know, the renewed controversy surrounding this study basically revolves around the, you know, like the, the pretty central difference in why a person is imprisoned in the first place. Right. I mean, it's a pretty obvious difference between involuntarily imprisoned and signing up for an experiment. Yeah, I mean, you know, and of course, that's, that's super obvious, right? But when I think about, you know, the psychological implications of the reality for the prisoners themselves, I, you know, I have to wonder if the utter lack of any rationale for being imprisoned might engender a kind of fundamentally different posture to the guard's orders. Like how? Like, uh, I'm not even supposed to be here? Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, it's tough to take the orders of a guard seriously when you know that they only have play pretend authority and that you didn't actually do anything to land in prison. You're not actually paying a debt to society. You're literally just playing pretend. But do they not acknowledge this limitation in the study? I mean, they must, surely. Yeah, I mean, sort of. So, you know, there's a quote from the body of the text in a section of the paper titled, um, quote, Reality of the Simulation, that I think kind of compromises this acknowledgement, though. And it goes like this, quote, In one sense, the profound psychological effects we observed under the relatively minimal prison-like conditions which existed in our mock prison make the results even more significant and force us to wonder about the devastating impact of chronic incarceration in real prisons, end quote. Now, you know, the next sentence is, is an acknowledgement that the conditions of their mock prison were, you know, as they put it, quote, too minimal to provide a meaningful analog to existing prisons, end quote. Well, that's fair. Uh, but yeah, I kind of see what you mean. They're basically saying that as simple as this experiment was, imagine how intense the psychological trauma that occurs in an actual prison is. Yeah, right. You know, it's kind of like saying a limitation of their experimental design is actually a strength. <laughs> um, but another way to consider this issue is that, you know, rather than just being kind of like a smaller dose of prison conditions, it's actually just a critically confounding factor. Like you're not really comparing oranges to oranges or even oranges to tangerines. You're comparing, you know, oranges to like styrofoam balls, spray painted orange or something. Tennis balls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. Or tennis balls. <laughs> right. Uh, so maybe in all the ways that matter the most, they're just fundamentally not comparable. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, that that's just something I have to wonder. Um, and another aspect I found challenging to accept is, you know, in his defense of the study, Zimbardo makes it clear that the behaviors observed bore a striking resemblance to the types of abuse discovered to have been occurring in the Abu Ghraib prison during the war in Iraq. And, you know, as we mentioned in the last episode, if anybody isn't familiar with what was being done to prisoners there, it's, it's very macabre and grotesque. You know, it's a horrible story of, of brutal and inhumane abuse perpetrated by the guards. And I mean, do you remember hearing about Abu Ghraib? Oh, yeah, that was in the news. Right. And so, you know, it, it took place in uh, around like 2003, you know, but the stories um, hit the press in 2004 with photos um, of, you know, the guards abuse. I was in college at the time, and I really only peripherally paid attention to politics at the time, admittedly. Um, but yeah, I do remember seeing, you know, some incredibly eerie pictures of picture uh, pr prisoners being tied up, standing on boxes, draped in, I don't know, some sort of dark cloth with a black hood that covered their whole head. Yeah, and so that that's probably one of the most famous pictures. Um, but there are literally hundreds of pictures from the prison, um, as well as some videos. And, and here, you know, I'll show you uh, the picture so you know what I'm talking about. Ugh, that's worse than I remember. Uh, are you going to post some of these? 
Yeah, maybe that's a good idea. Um, maybe I'll post just this one on the blog um, post that's associated with the podcast. Um, but, you know, anyways, I'm no historian, but because Zimbardo had basically become one of the experts on how these types of inhumane and abusive situations arise, you know, I encountered a fair bit of his writing on the topic. Um, and, you know, I made it a point to review his writing on the events in preparation for this chat. And um, and one of the things he put out was a TED Talk about it in, in 2008 called The Psychology of Evil, you know, that's worth checking out, if only because he explores such interesting related topics, like, you know, a beautiful M.C. Escher painting. M.C. Escher is the guy who does, like, fractal types of pattern paintings, right? Yeah, and here, I'll, I'll show you the picture. You know, it's, it's called Circle Limit 4. Um, and, and maybe I'll post this on the blog as well. Anyways, it, it's kind of like those paintings that are made of a repeating pattern of black and white fish or, or birds. And, and if you focus on the black ones, you just see some spread out black fish. But then if you look at the spaces between the black fish, you know, you see a bunch of white birds as well. Okay. But in this case, the black pattern is of what looks like demons, while the white pattern look like angels. Uh, like the kind of angels that you might see at the top of a Christmas tree or something. Yeah, right, exactly. And so and Zimbardo opens his TED Talk with this image to introduce what I think is very illustrative of the overall point that he argues. You know, his overall message is, at its base, that human behavior is principally, if not entirely, nurture, that anyone is capable of the evil observed in Abu Ghraib. And he talks about good and evil in very black and white terms. You know, he brings up other studies of the propensity of humans to interact with others in abusive ways, like the Stanley Milgram experiment, for example, by literally saying that they were quantifying evil. Which is kind of similar to how they introduced the Stanford Prison experiment. You know, that's kind of the sense I've gotten from what he's written about, you know, his original experiment, and how it helps us to understand what happened at Abu Ghraib. He's vehemently arguing that we're all capable of this kind of behavior. But, at least in my mind, it's if some of those original experiments were flawed, and the entire framework of understanding how so many people could have come to behave in you know such, such abusive ways is based off these early studies, you know, I think we just have to reconsider just how strong the evidence for that argument really is. Well, do you think that he's wrong? I mean, honestly, I, I don't know. You know, I, I can't know. I haven't seen strong enough evidence either way. And in his talk and, and, and writing, Zimbardo enumerates specific criteria that are involved in what he calls the slippery slope of evil. First, mindlessly taking the first small step. Second, dehumanization of others. Third, deindividuation of self or anonymity. Fourth, diffusion of personal responsibility. Fifth, blind obedience to authority. Sixth, uncritical conformity to group norms. And seventh, passive tolerance of evil through inaction or indifference. I mean, that all honestly makes intuitive sense to me. Yeah, I mean, it does to me too. And, and perhaps it's an accurate set of criteria. Um, and perhaps he's correct about the propensity in all of us to behave in evil ways. But maybe it's more complicated than this. Could you come up with an alternative hypothesis? Like like a null hypothesis? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, sure. So, you know, that that's a good exercise. Like um, what would a, hypo a hypothesis based on nature rather than nurture be? Right, right. So, so that hypothesis would imply that people must be born to behave in evil ways. And to be clear, you know, this isn't what I believe. This is just what we might call an equally strong hypothesis on the opposite end of the nature-nurture spectrum. Right, the other side of the pendulum swing. Exactly. So, you know, again, the hypothesis would be based on the, on, you know, the claim that people are basically born with the ability to behave in evil ways, and then others are born with the inability to behave in evil ways. And the strong hypothesis 
would suggest that the environment has nothing to do with it. I mean, you know, hypothetically, I mean, maybe a more realistic hypothesis would be that certain environments and conditions are capable of eliciting evil behavior only in people who are born to behave in those ways, you know, while others, regardless of environment, simply will not behave in that way. Okay, right. And so, you know, this hypothesis might further uh, speculate that people born to behave in that way might gravitate towards professions that provide them the opportunities to exhibit those behaviors. Jobs like as a prison guard. Right. Or, or violent criminal acts. Right. And so, you know, you just get a sort of self-selection process at work where people who are just born to treat other humans abusively tend to aggregate in certain environments, thereby making it significantly more likely that violent, inhumane interactions occur, which people, you know, which may appear grotesque to people who who would never be attracted to those jobs or environments because they're just born with the brain that predisposes them to find them grotesque. Okay, so that's the opposing argument, which honestly, it strikes me as being at least logically coherent. And I suppose that's kind of the point. That's exactly my takeaway. You know, it's abundantly clear from the introduction to the original study from the early 70s that they were motivated by an effort to undermine what they saw as a horribly abusive prevailing philosophy held by the prison system at the time that's resulted in the unjustified and inhumane suffering of thousands and thousands of people. Which was basically that prisoners are born to be prisoners. And that intense punishment and force were the only ways to manage them as a result. Exactly. And once again, I think the underlying motivation was fundamentally a good one. But perhaps, as Zimbardo argues, occurred to the participants in his study, the line blurring between acting as a prison guard and, you know, actually behaving as, uh, behaving as an abusive guard. Perhaps in him, you know, the line between prison reformer and scientist began to blur for Zimbardo. Right. And I honestly could understand if he never actually set out to conduct a flawed study, that he didn't, like, start out with the goal of proving that it's the environment that changes people, causing them to be capable of the brutality that he ended up seeing. Yeah. You know, I know what you mean. Um, that he wasn't intending to mislead people, right? And, and clearly from the video recordings that are available of the actual experiment, you know, he wasn't exaggerating their behavior or fabricating data or anything, but perhaps he had a bit of a blind spot when it came to some of the limitations of the study. And of course, that doesn't mean that the alternative hypothesis that we talked about earlier is more true uh, or true at all. Yeah, that's exactly right. It definitely doesn't mean that. It just means that perhaps we need to revisit some of the studies that were done decades ago and see where there might be room for improvement so that we can come to a better understanding of why it is that humans can behave so terribly to one another. All right. Well, until we find that next old study that you want to criticize, maybe we should call it a day here. <laughs> sure. Okay. And until the next study. Is there a next old school study? Ever heard of the Stanley Milgram experiment? Mm -mm. Are you being serious? <laughs> yeah, so there's some arguments that we need to rethink that one, too. Wow, so what's next? Don't tell me it's the theory of relativity. Well, you know, I have heard. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, I'm not a physicist. But, but, you know, I don't have to tell you, right? This is how science evolves. This is to be expected. These are not bad signs. They're actually good signs. They're signs that we're getting better at doing science, conducting better experiments, controlling for more variables that we didn't even know existed decades ago asking more questions and asking them more precisely armed with better techniques and technologies and a greater diversity of disciplines. So not only is it a good sign, frankly, it's to be expected. Okay. And with that, if you've listened to us chatter to this point and you have a bit more time, we'd love a lovely five-star rating on iTunes. If, of course, you have the spare time. It helps more people to see the show. Yeah. 
Until next time, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Thank you.